for the <clears throat> reading of the sermonic text. This time I will just read aloud and you listen from Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through his spirit who dwells in you. And to the reading of the word of God, let us all say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Those of you that have known me for a while know that I uh, preach and teach and write about the resurrection a great deal. Um... If you follow my theological career at all, and most of you have not and don't need to, you know that I'm what's called a resurrection theologian. Uh, I believe the Bible itself backs me up on this, my friends. From the New Testament, it seems to me that Jesus' resurrection is the entire hinge of what God is doing in the world. Not the crucifixion, vital though it is, not the second coming, indispensable though it is but the resurrection you know if there's any uh, Sunday on which people should leave church with the greatest joy and the greatest encouragement it's Easter because because Easter highlights what being a Christian is all about Christians all of us should be Easter people not just on Easter but throughout our entire lives uh, these days, we celebrate Easter as a holiday, a holy day, once a year. But let me remind you again that in the primitive church, Easter was every Sunday. And that's why the church met on the first day of their week, what we would call our Sunday. Now think about this for a minute. Why doesn't the church of Jesus Christ meet on Friday? I mean, on Good Friday, we celebrate the death of our Lord, and we should celebrate the death of our Lord. 
We should remember it, understand his great atoning death on the cross, without which there is no salvation. And yet, the church doesn't meet on Good Friday. The church meets on Sunday. We might want to say, it's Good Friday and Great Sunday in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's the beginning of the service in our church and many others. And at the end, we say, he is risen. And the congregation says, he is risen Today, I want to preach about a feature of the resurrection that I think many Christians seem never to have thought about because they don't read the Bible carefully. But I must say, I'm convinced one reason for this ignorance is the failure of the pulpits. It's not mostly the people of God. It's mostly, if I may say so, those who do what I do. They have not preached faithfully and taught their congregations what the word of God says. They're ignorant about this transformative truth and they impoverish God's people. That's a mistake I don't want to make. Now, um, many Christians seem to believe that the great value of our Lord's resurrection is that it proves his divinity. It proves that Jesus was God. That's the really important thing, they will say, about the resurrection. And of course, that's true as far as it goes. When Jesus was walking the earth, performing miracles, and when he was teaching his disciples, he predicted his own resurrection. Now, that was a pretty fantastic claim, right? I mean, imagine if somebody did that today. Um, Imagine then if this person died in the same way he had predicted Then imagine if this person rose from the dead in the same way he predicted. And then imagine further that there was a very old book, a very old book that had predicted this would happen. Well, that's precisely what happened with our Lord, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So you can understand how Christians might believe the really critical factor of the resurrection. The really important thing is that Jesus claimed to be God. And the resurrection proves that, that he was the son of God. He certainly was. And his resurrection does verify his deity or his divinity. But that isn't the only reason that Jesus rose from the dead. And in my view, it's not even the most important reason. At least Paul didn't seem to think so in Romans 8 and elsewhere. Now, if you've read much about Paul and know what Paul writes, Paul's big job seems to interpret the death of Jesus and the resurrection and the second coming for the new Christians and for the new churches that were springing up after Jesus ascended. Now, the Gospels, you know you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What are are they basically? What, What do you read about basically in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Tell me, somebody. The narrative of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It starts that way, and it ends basically with his death and resurrection, and to the very end, his ascension. Right. So, but Paul teaches us what all of these things mean for us. That's what Paul does. He says, you already know about this stuff in the Gospels. Now let me tell you what this all means for you. That seems to be Paul's job. Therefore, Paul talked about the resurrection a lot. But to my knowledge... He never taught that the chief point of the resurrection, the chief point, is to prove that Jesus is God. Of course Paul believed that. But for him, the real significance of the resurrection is even deeper than that. Now for Paul, Jesus' resurrection puts the entire Christian life, the entire world, on a new footing. 
Today I want to stress one way that uh, our Lord's resurrection does this. But even if you understand only this one way, and if you act on it today, your entire life can be changed forever. And if you saw the title of the message in the bulletin, it's called Easter Inside Us. Easter Inside Us. But before that, just for one second, I want to talk about Easter Outside Us. Now, you've probably heard the terms objective and subjective before. Now, they're very important terms, um, and they're not really hard to understand. Objective denotes what's real and what's true apart from what we think about it or how we feel about it. For instance, the physical universe is objectively real. And if you don't think so, well, I'm sorry, you're nuts. God, who created the universe, is objectively real. God and the universe don't depend on how you think about them and how you feel about them. They're what we call objective realities. But then there are uh, subjective realities. For instance, my belief that liver or tofu is really disgusting food is subjective. Now, some people think that liver and tofu are really, really tasty. I can't imagine why, but they do. Now, whether you think that tofu and liver are disgusting or whether you think they're tasty, it's a subjective reality, not an objective reality. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an objective reality. Now, let me tell you concretely what this means. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, if you were there on the day that Jesus Christ was crucified, he says you could run your finger. How objective is it? You could run your finger up the cross and get a splinter in it. That's how Schaefer put it. That's how real he is. In the same way, you could put your hand on Jesus' arm after his resurrection, and you could feel the hair on his arm. Luke 24 is very clear about that. Thomas doubted him, and what did Jesus say? Come touch me. You're the one who said, if I put my hand, my finger in his hands or in his side, then I'll believe. And what did Jesus say? No, no, don't do that because I'm only a spirit. No, what did Jesus say? Do it. Come here, come here. You're the one that was doubting? They're going to call you Doubting Thomas. Come here, come here, touch me, feel that. Like that. It's real. Jesus physically rose from the dead. Now, it's true that his body had superhuman properties. He could move at great speeds. He could travel through closed doors. But that wasn't because he was a spirit or a little ghost haunting a house. It was because the Holy Spirit changed and charged his body with amazing capacities. And by the way, it seems to me that you and I will have that one day, those of us that have trusted in Jesus Christ. Now, this is an important point to make. Paul tells us that if Jesus didn't rise bodily from the dead, we are still in our sins. Now, some liberals teach that uh, Jesus' resurrection, of course, but they claim that Jesus sort of rose again only in our minds and in our hearts. There was a story on CNN yesterday, an Easter story, where a theologian sort of taught that. The important thing is Christians disagree about the bodily resurrection, but it's the idea that there can be sort of new life in your heart. Warning, never trust theologians from CNN. (laughs) They're not known for being great theologians. If Jesus didn't actually physically rise from the dead, it doesn't matter how much he rises in your heart, you can't be saved. Jesus' bodily resurrection is an objective reality. But it's also 
a subjective reality. And I want to conclude by just talking about that today. Now, did you see verse 11 that we just read in Romans chapter 8? Verse 11. It is truly remarkable, but we often don't think about it. Let me read it for you again. Look in your Bibles or your bulletin. Notice verse 11. If the Spirit of Him, the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, if you read that verse all by itself, you might get the idea that Paul is saying this. Just as the Holy Spirit raised Jesus' body from the dead, so that same Spirit will raise you from the dead one day in the future. There's going to be a glorious resurrection, you might think Paul is saying. And just as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, was raised from the dead, so you will be raised from the dead. And that is true, a thousand times true. But that's not specifically what Paul is teaching in this passage. Romans chapter 8 is a chapter about victory over sin, not about future bodily resurrection. He deals with that in 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere. Now, you can't really understand the full weight of that if you don't understand the full weight of what Paul was saying about Jesus Christ and the power, the power of sin over Jesus Christ before the resurrection. Now, don't get nervous when I speak about the power of sin over Jesus. I don't mean by that that Jesus was a sinner. He certainly was not. But that doesn't mean that sin had no power in Jesus' life. Paul says that Jesus, who didn't know sin, was made sin for us. Because of this, Isaiah prophesied that he would be burdened with our griefs and he would carry our sorrows. In his earthly life, Jesus carried the weight of our sin on his shoulders. Do you understand that? You read in the Gospels about Jesus Christ being weary and being faint and going to sleep and later on being mocked and scourged. He carried this heavy weight of our sin on him his entire life. Not his sin, but he was chained and weighted down by our sin. And the final and devastating blow that sin delivered to Jesus Christ was death. Death on the cross, separation from the Father, the judgment of God, his Father falling on him. That's the ultimate price of sin, separation from God. It started in the Garden of Eden. God banished Adam and Eve from his presence. Why? Because that's what sin does. That's what sin does. And wherever man has gone since, death has followed him. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says that death is an enemy, the last enemy that will be destroyed. And you know that. If you've lived for a while, you know that. We just had a, one of our dear families here had a close relative, grandfather, pass away. Death robs us of the joys of life. It steals those closest to us. It casts a shadow on even the greatest delights of life. We're out laughing and having a good time, and then somebody brings up a name grandfather, an uncle, a close one, somebody that's died, and we're laughing and happy in the moment, and we, kind of our laughter kind of peters out a little bit, because we think of the one that is gone, and death. That death is the bitter fruit of sin. When Jesus died, he paid the penalty for our sin. When he arose, he demonstrated his power over sin. 
The grave couldn't chain him because sin no longer chained him. Now listen to this. The resurrection, therefore, didn't just prove that Jesus was God. It proved that flesh and blood could defeat the power of sin. That's a key. Flesh and blood could defeat the power of sin. Adam couldn't do it. Adam failed. But who succeeded? Jesus Christ. In his flesh. Now do you see why bodily resurrection is so important? It's not just that Jesus in his spirit was able to do it. Jesus was tempted in his flesh, in his body. And therefore he had to defeat the power of sin in his body. Now, if you understand this, you're in a position to understand this stunning truth that Paul is teaching in Romans 8. And I conclude with this. He's not teaching that the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the grave 2,000 years ago will raise us from the grave. Of course that's true. The Bible teaches that elsewhere. He's teaching that the same Holy Spirit that gave Jesus the victory over sin, the power of sin in his resurrection, that spirit is in our bodies and gives us victory over sin right now. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 8. You see, Jesus had to wait until the resurrection to be freed from the shackles of sin. He had to wait. That's when he was freed from the shackles of sin. From the shackles of our sin, not his sin. He's broken from those shackles. But when you and I trust in Jesus Christ, we're united not only to his death, but also to his resurrection. And therefore, we're united to his breaking of sin's chains. That's what we're united to. It means we don't have to wait until our resurrection to get victory over sin. Did you get that? Jesus had to wait until his resurrection to get victory over sin, our sin. But because we're united to him by faith if we're trusting in him, we don't have to wait until our final resurrection. We're united to his resurrection and his victory over sin. We talk a lot about substitutionary atonement, but we equally need to talk about substitutionary victory. Jesus won the victory for us. Do you understand that? He won the victory over sin, and therefore we can have it. Now, immediately somebody says, but Andrew, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus is sinless. He never sinned. Certainly didn't sin in his resurrection body, not even before. Therefore, are we sinless? Or can we become sinless? Never sin in this life? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Why? Well, because even though we're united to Jesus Christ, we're still united to what Paul calls the flesh. The flesh. He doesn't mean this when he says the flesh. By the flesh, Paul means the principle of sin we were born into. Rebellion against God. Hostility. You know what I'm talking about. Somebody says something. Somebody tells you to do something, a person in authority, and immediately you're, you know, sin. It's rebellion. That's the flesh. Look at something, and we want to have it more than anything. Covet. That's the flesh. Somebody says something, and we get angry. We spout off, and angry and a sinful. That's, that's the flesh. That's the flesh, you see. That principle is extremely powerful. If you don't believe that, read what Paul says in Romans 7. In fact, this sin is so powerful, it's so powerful that only God can destroy it. Only God can destroy it. And that's what he's doing in the already not yet. You've heard of this expression, the already not yet? What do I mean by that? We already have the Spirit's resurrection power living within us. But we're not yet fully resurrected. And so we've got this constant battle going on in us. We live in resurrection power, but we also live in the domain 
of sin's power. But here's the key. And here's what Easter inside really means. And if you don't understand anything else I said, and I hope you did, understand this. These two powers in the life of the Christian are not equally powerful. That's the key. The power of the Holy Spirit is stronger than the power of sin. John tells us that one living inside us is greater than the one living in the world. The one living inside us is the Holy Spirit. And the one living in the world is Satan. Is the Holy Spirit more powerful than Satan? If that is the case, and if the Holy Spirit is living inside you and me, then we have inside us the power to live in consistent, not perfect, but consistent victory over sin. And that's Paul's chief point in Romans 8. That's what he means. See, that's what he's saying in verse 11. I'm going to add a little ellipsis here. Add to explanatory as I read. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that is the Holy Spirit, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead and gave him victory over the power of sin will also give life to your present mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you so that you also can have victory over sin. That's what that verse is teaching. That's what it's teaching. The issue isn't whether you and I can live a sinless life. We can't. No human except Jesus is sinless. According to Paul in Romans 8, the issue is not, can you live a sinless life? That's not the issue. But rather the issue is, who is Lord? For unbelievers, sin is their Lord. But when we trust Jesus Christ, we get a new Lord. Jesus is the Lord. And where Jesus is Lord, sin cannot be Lord. Do you understand that? Where Jesus is Lord, sin cannot be Lord. Sin can't dominate us because the Holy Spirit dominates us. Now somebody asks, but how is it then, Andrew, that some Christians don't really live this way? How is it they still experience this power of sin in their lives and addictions and all of these things? For Paul, the answer is very clear. They're not living by faith. They're not living in surrender. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 11 and the surrounding verses, Paul teaches that we are to reckon. We're to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness. That is, we act on faith. Now here's what you need to understand. The devil is a liar. Do you want, this, is, this is new. Only those of you that are theologians will understand this. The devil is what we like to say at our house, a BFL, a big fat liar. The devil fools us into thinking he's more powerful than he really is. The devil is a panic artist. He tries to scare people into making decisions. Scare them into thinking he's super powerful. But he's not. And the sooner we find that out, the sooner sin will lose its grip in our lives. Do you understand that point? When you get up in the morning and surrender to Jesus Christ by faith and say, I'm living today in the power of the resurrection... Oh, Holy Spirit, strengthen me today. I have the power of the resurrection living within me. Not because I'm good or because of my righteousness, but because the goodness of your Son and what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. I therefore surrender myself. I surrender my mind. Surrender all of my bodily parts. I surrender everything. My conscience, my intellect, my intuition. I surrender myself entirely to you, Holy Spirit of God, so that I will not live in the flesh, but live according to the power of the Spirit. If you do that consistently, according to the word of God, you can consistently have victory over sin. I didn't say you would never sin or fail. I said you can live consistently, victoriously. 
Let's review. Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. The tomb's empty. This really happened. Jesus is alive today. What happened 2,000 years ago changes us on the inside. If we trust in Jesus Christ, we're united not just to his death, but also to his resurrection. This means we're united to his victory over sin. When Jesus was living, sin chained him. Sin chained him. He wasn't a sinner, but our sins chained him. They weighed him down. Eventually, our sins were so powerful that our sins nailed him to the cross. That's how powerful our sin was. It was powerful enough to nail Jesus Christ to the cross. That's where he suffered in place for us. He suffered and died for our sin. But on Easter morning, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, broke the chains of sin. Sin no longer had dominion over Jesus. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, this means that Jesus didn't die just for our sins. He rose from the dead so that we can have victory over sin. Jesus died on a hill called Golgotha. You can still go there today. When we trust in Jesus, we don't just get Golgotha victory. We get Easter victory. Every day we're trusting in Jesus to forgive our sin. But also, and just as importantly, every day we should be trusting Jesus to defeat the remaining sin in our own lives. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and defeated sin in his life is the spirit that defeats sin in our own lives. That is the great Easter victory inside every Christian. And if you're trusting Jesus Christ, it is inside you. Let us bow our heads. Rather than have a special separate prayer time today, we're going to have our prayer time right now.